Lecture 4, Part 1 of Pragmatism. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Fredrik Karlsson. Pragmatism by William James. Lecture 4. The One and the Many. We saw in the last lecture that the pragmatic method, in its dealings with certain concepts, instead of ending with admiring contemplation, plunges forward into the river of experience with them and prolongs the perspective by their means. Design, free will, the absolute mind, spirit instead of matter, have for their sole meaning a better promise as to this world's outcome. Be they false or be they true, the meaning of them is this meliorism. I have sometimes thought of the phenomenon called total reflection in optics as a good symbol of the relation between abstract ideas and concrete realities, as pragmatism conceives it. Hold a tumbler of water a little above your eyes and look up through the water at its surface, or better still, look similarly through the flat wall of an aquarium. You will then see an extraordinarily brilliant reflected image, say of a candle flame or any other clear object, situated on the opposite side of the vessel. No candle ray, under these circumstances, gets beyond the water's surface. Every ray is totally reflected back into the depths again. Now let the water represent the world of sensible facts and let the air above it represent the world of abstract ideas. Both worlds are real, of course, and interact, but they interact only at their boundary, and the locus of everything that lives and happens to us, so far as full experience goes, is the water. We are like fishes swimming in the sea of sense, bounded above by the superior element, but unable to breathe it pure or penetrate it. We get our oxygen from it, however, we touch it incessantly, now in this part, now in that, and every time we touch it, we are reflected back into the water with our course redetermined and re-energized. The abstract ideas of which the air consists, indispensable for life, but irrespirable by themselves, as it were, and only active in their redirecting function. All similes are halting, but this one rather takes my fancy. It shows how something, not sufficient for life in itself, may nevertheless be an effective determinant of life elsewhere. In this present hour I wish to illustrate the pragmatic method by one more application. I wish to turn its light upon the ancient problem of the one and the many. I suspect that in but few of you has this problem occasioned sleepless nights, and I should not be astonished if some of you told me it had never vexed you. I myself have come, by long brooding over it, to consider it the most central of all philosophic problems. Central because so pregnant. I mean by this that if you know whether man is a decided monist or a decided pluralist, you perhaps know more about the rest of his opinions than if you give him any other name ending in ist. To believe in the one or in the many, that is the classification, with the maximum number of consequences. So bear with me for an hour while I try to inspire you with my own interest in the problem. Philosophy has often been defined as the quest or the vision of world's unity. We never hear this definition challenged, and it is true as far as it goes, for philosophy has indeed manifested above all things its interest in unity. 
But how about the variety in things? Is that such an irrelevant matter? If instead of using the term philosophy, we talk in general of our intellect and its needs, we quickly see that unity is only one of these. Acquaintance with the details of fact is always reckoned, along with a reduction to system, as an indispensable mark of mental greatness. Your scholarly mind of encyclopedic philological type, your man essentially of learning, has never lacked for praise along with your philosopher. What our intellect really aims at is neither variety nor unity taking singly, but totality. Footnote. Compare A. Bellinger, Les Concepts de Cause et l'Activité Intentionnelle de l'Esprit. Paris, Alken, 1905, page 79, ff. In this, acquaintance with reality's diversities is as important as understanding their connection. The human passion of curiosity runs on all fours with the systematizing passion. In spite of this obvious fact, the unity of things has always been considered more illustrious, as it were, than their variety. When a young man first conceives the notion that the whole world forms one great fact, with all its parts moving abreast, as it were, and interlocked, he feels as if he were enjoying a great insight, and looks superciliously on all who still fall short of this sublime conception. Taken thus abstractly as it first comes to one, the first monistic insight is so vague as hardly to seem worth defending intellectually. Yet probably everyone in this audience in some way cherishes it. A certain abstract monism, a certain emotional response to the character of oneness, as if it were a feature of the world not coordinate with its manyness, but vastly more excellent and eminent, is so prevalent in educated circles that we might almost call it a part of philosophic common sense. Of course the world is one, we say. How else could it be a world at all? Empiricists, as a rule, are as stout monists of this abstract kind as rationalists are. The difference is that the empiricists are less dazzled. Unity doesn't blind them to everything else, doesn't quench their curiosity for special facts, whereas there is a kind of rationalist who is sure to interpret abstract unity mystically, and to forget everything else, to treat it as a principle, to admire and worship it, and thereupon to come to a full stop intellectually. The world is one. The formula may become a sort of number-worship, three and seven have it is true been reckoned sacred numbers but abstractly taken why is one more excellent than forty-three or than two million and ten in this first vague conviction of the world's unity there is so little to take hold of that we hardly know what we mean by it the only way to get forward with our notion is to treat it pragmatically Granting the oneness to exist, what facts will be different in consequence? What will the unity be known as? The world is one, yes, but how one? What is the practical value of the oneness for us? Asking such questions, we pass from the vague to the definite, from the abstract to the concrete. 
Many distinct ways in which oneness predicated of the universe might make a difference come to view. I will note successively the more obvious of these ways. 1. First, the world is at least one subject of discourse. If its manyness was so irremediable as to permit no union whatever of its parts, not even our mind could mean the whole of it at once. There would be like eyes trying to look in opposite directions. But in point of fact we mean to cover the whole of it by our abstract term world or universe, which expressly intends that no part shall be left out. Such unity of discourse carries obviously no farther monistic specifications. A chaos once so named has so much unity of discourse as a cosmos. It is an odd fact that many monists consider a great victory scored for their side when pluralists say the universe is many. The universe, they chuckle, his speech bevrayeth him, he stands confessed of monism out of his own mouth. Well, let things be one in that sense. You can then fling such a word as universe at the whole collection of them, but what matters it? It still remains to be ascertained whether they are one in any other sense that is more valuable. 2. Are they, for example, continuous? Can you pass from one to another, keeping always in your one universe without any danger of falling out? In other words, do the parts of our universe hang together, instead of being like detached grains of sand? Even grains of sand hang together through the space in which they are embedded, and if you can in any way move through such space, you can pass continuously from number one of them to number two. Space and time are thus vehicles of continuity, by which the world's parts hang together. The practical difference to us, resultant from these forms of union, is immense. Our whole motor life is based upon them, 3. There are innumerable other paths of practical continuity among things. Lines of influence can be traced by which they together. Following any such line you pass from one thing to another till you may have covered a good part of the universe's extent. Gravity and heat conduction are such all uniting influences so far as the physical world goes. Electric, luminous, and chemical influences follow similar lines of influence. But opaque and inert bodies interrupt the continuity here, so that you have to step round them or change your mode of progress if you wish to get farther on that day. Practically, you have then lost your universe's unity, so far as it was constituted by those first lines of influence. There are innumerable kinds of connection that special things have with other special things, and the ensemble of any one of these connections form one sort of system by which things are conjoined. Thus men are conjoined in a vast network of acquaintanceship. Brown knows Jones, Jones knows Robinson, etc., and by choosing your father intermediaries rightly you may carry a message from jones to the empress of china or the chief of african pygmies or to anyone else in the inhabited world 
but you are stopped short as by a non-conductor when you choose one man wrong in this experiment. What may be called love systems are grafted on the acquaintance system. A loves or hates B, B loves or hates C, etc. But these systems are smaller than the great acquaintance system that they presuppose. Human efforts are daily unifying the world more and more in definite systematic ways. We found colonial, postal, consular, commercial systems, all the parts of which they obey definite influences that propagate themselves within the system but not to facts outside of it. The result is innumerable little hangings together of the world's parts within the larger hangings together little worlds not only of discourse but of operation within the wider universe. Each system exemplifies one type or grade of union, its parts being strung on that peculiar kind of relation, and the same part may figure in many different systems, as a man may hold several offices and belong to various clubs. From this systematic point of view, therefore, the pragmatic value of the world's unity is that all these definite networks actually and practically exist. Some are more enveloping and extensive, some less so. They are superposed upon each other, and between them all they let no individual elementary part of the universe escape. Enormous as is the amount of disconnection among things, for these systematic influences and conjunctions follow rigidly exclusive paths, everything that exists is influenced in some way by something else, if you can only pick the way out rightly. Loosely speaking, and in general, it may be said that all things cohere and adhere to each other somehow, and that the universe exists practically in reticulated or concatenated forms which make of it a continuous or integrated affair. Any kind of influence, whatever, helps to make the world one, so far as you can follow it from next to next. You may then say that the world is one, meaning in these respects, namely, and just so far as they obtain. But just as definitely is it not one, so far as they do not obtain, and there is no species of connection which will not fail if, instead of choosing conductors for it, you choose non-conductors. You are then arrested at your very first step, and have to write the world down as a pure many from that particular point of view. If our intellect had been as much interested in disjunctive as it is in conjunctive relations, philosophy would have equally successfully celebrated the world's disunion. The great point is to notice that the oneness and the manyness are absolutely coordinate here. Neither is primordial or more essential or excellent than the other. Just as with space, whose separating of things seems exactly on a par with its uniting of them, but sometimes one function and sometimes the other is what come home to us most, so, in our general dealings with the world of influences, we now need conductors and now need non-conductors, and wisdom lies in knowing which is which at the appropriate moment. 4. 
All these systems of influence or non-influence may be listed under the general problem of the world's causal unity. If the minor causal influences among things should converge towards one common causal origin of them in the past, one great first cause for all, that is, one might then speak of the absolute causal unity of the world. God's fiat on creation's day has figured in traditional philosophy as such an absolute cause and origin. Transcendental idealism, translating creation into thinking, or willing to think, calls the divine act eternal rather than first. But the union of the many here is absolute, just the same. The many would not be, save for the one. Against this notion of unity of origin of all, there has always stood the pluralistic notion of an eternal self-existing many in the shape of atoms or even of spiritual units of some sort. The alternative has doubtless a pragmatic meaning, but perhaps, as far as these lectures go, we had better leave the question of unity of origin unsettled. 5. The most important sort of union that obtains among things, pragmatically speaking, is their generic unity. Things exist in kinds. There are many specimens in each kind, and what the kind implies for one specimen, it implies also for every other specimen of that kind. We can easily conceive that every fact in the world might be singular, that is, unlike any other fact and soul of its kind. In such a world of singulars, our logic would be useless, for logic works by predicating of the single instance what is true of all its kind. With no two things alike in the world, we should be unable to reason from our past experiences to our future ones. The existence of so much generic unity in things is thus perhaps the most momentous pragmatic specification of what it may mean to say, the world is one. Absolute generic unity would obtain if there were one summum genus under which all things without exception could be eventually subsumed. Beings, thinkables, experiences would be candidates for this position. Whether the alternatives expressed by such words have any pragmatic significance or not is another question which I prefer to leave unsettled just now. 6. Another specification of what the phrase the world is one may mean is unity of purpose. An enormous number of things in the world subserve a common purpose. All the man-made systems, administrative, industrial, military, or what not, exist each for its controlling purpose. Every living being pursues its own peculiar purposes. They cooperate according to the degree of their development, in collective or tribal purposes, larger ends thus enveloping lesser ones, until an absolutely single, final, and climacteric purpose subserved by all things without exception might conceivably be reached. It is needless to say that the appearances conflict with such a view. Any resultant, as I said in my third lecture, may have been purposed in advance, but none of the results we actually know in this world have in point of fact been purposed in advance in all their details. 
men and nations start with a vague notion of being rich or great or good each step they make brings unforeseen chances into sight and shuts out older vistas and the specifications of the general purpose have to be daily changed what is reached in the end may be better or worse than what was proposed but it is always more complex and different our different purposes also are at war with each other where one can't crush the other out they compromise and the result is again different from what any one distinctly proposed beforehand vaguely and generally much of what was purposed may be gained but everything makes strongly for the view that our world is incompletely unified teleologically and is still trying to get its unification better organized whoever claims absolute teleological unity saying that there is one purpose that every detail of the universe subserves dogmatizes at his own risk theologians who dogmatize thus find it more and more impossible as our acquaintance with the warring interests of the world's parts grows more concrete to imagine what the one climacteric purpose may possibly be like we see indeed that certain evils minister to ulterior goods that the bitter makes the cocktail better and that a bit of danger or hardship puts us agreeably to our trumps we can vaguely generalize this into the doctrine that all the evil in the universe is but instrumental to its greater perfection but the scale of the evil actually in sight defies all human tolerance and transcendental idealism in the pages of a bradley or a royce brings us no farther than the book of job did god's ways are not our ways so let us put our hands upon our mouth a god who can relish such superfluities of horror is no god for human beings to appeal to his animal spirits are too high in other words the absolute with his own purpose is not the man-like god of common people seven aesthetic union among things also obtains and is very analogous to the ideological union things tell a story their parts hang together so as to work out a climax they play into each other's hands expressively retrospectively we can see that although no definite purpose presided over a chain of events yet the events fell into a dramatic form with a start a middle and a finish in point of fact all stories end and here again the point of view of a many is that more natural one to take the world is full of partial stories that run parallel to one another beginning and ending at odd times they mutually interlace and interfere at points but we cannot unify them completely in our minds in following our life history i must temporarily turn my attention from my own even a biographer of twins would have to press them alternately upon his reader's attention it follows that whoever says that the whole world tells one story utters another of those monistic dogmas that a man believes at his risk it is easy to see the world's history pluralistically as a rope of which each fibre tells a separate tale 
but to conceive of each cross-section of the rope as an absolutely single fact and to sum the whole longitudinal series into one being living an undivided life is harder we have indeed the analogy of embryology to help us the microscopist makes a hundred flat cross-sections of a given embryo and mentally unites them into one solid whole but the great world's ingredients so far as they are beings seem like the rope's fibres to be discontinuous crosswise and to cohere only in the longitudinal direction followed in that direction they are many even the embryologist when he follows the development of his object has to treat the history of each single organ in turn absolute aesthetic union is thus another barely abstract ideal the world appears as something more epic than dramatic so far then we see how the world is unified by its many systems kinds purposes and dramas that there is more union in all these ways than openly appears is certainly true that there may be one sovereign purpose system kind and story is a legitimate hypothesis all i say here is that it is rash to affirm this dogmatically without better evidence than we possess at present end of lecture four part one